come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 223 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here, uh, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So on this episode here for you is going to be Black Appreciation number 9. Now, it's not going to work out as well as I would have liked here, but let me get into that as to why. Because the first featured review is going to be Underground. Now, as far as I remember, there was not anybody that was black in this movie, but this does have a co-director as well as co-writer and a predominantly female cast, so that does end up working for women appreciation. But the reason that this is black appreciation here is because the second featured review is Black Box, where this has a black director as well as the cast is predominantly black as well so that's how i can pay homage there but both of these do have kind of some interesting things where people are being haunted by the supernatural or maybe just by things in their mind so then i also have mini reviews of ganjen hess i got to see that at the gateway film center i also rewatched them as my foray through the fours got to see a screener of manhattan zodiac 77 gave a watch to dark man 3 die dark man die because i had some time and then i also got to go see at the gateway film center as well interview with the vampire the vampire chronicles which also it doubles as a foray through the fours so i don't think there's anything else i need to get through here for this intro so i will say is thank you so much for listening and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me And for my first mini-review on this episode is going to be Ganja and Hess. This is from 1973. This is written and directed by Bill Gunn. This stars Dwayne Jones, Marlene Clark, and Bill Gunn. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with our snops beam. After being stabbed with an ancient German-fested knife, a doctor's assistant finds himself with an insatiable desire for blood. So this one, I'll be honest, I didn't know about until watching Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. This appeared there, and then I ended up seeking this movie out for this podcast for Celebration of Black History, the first time that I did that. And if you are curious, that will be episode 14, which featured Ganja and Hess and Gretel and Hansel. 
which is kind of funny because that was like, there's a lot of ands in the title there, but I will digress on going farther there. But I've also watched this for the podcast Under the Stairs when we did a run on Movie Club Challenge for Black Exploitation. I've also now got to see this in the theater at the Gateway Film Center for their Winter Vampire series, and that's why I got to do this. Also going to have a shout out to my wife for you know coming home early from work so I could go ahead and make it to this. You're welcome. <laughs> so she could watch my da- our daughter. And I don't know if you heard her as she whispered through the door. Now I want to. <laughs> now I want to start. So this is an interesting movie. We are getting a low budget art house look on vampirism. The backdrop is that we have a now extinct tribe that claimed to have this creature living amongst them, and there was a dagger that is infected with the cause. Doctor Hess Green, who is Jones, I think is an anthropologist, or that's what he seems like. He agrees to take on George Mita, who is portrayed by Gunn, who is, has a mental breakdown when staying at his house. This results in George killing himself and stabbing Hess with the infected knife. Now we see how Hess deals with the changes that comes over him. He frequents prostitutes and steals blood from clinics to survive. What I found interesting here is that he can eat and drink normal food, but he has an insatiable thirst for blood as well. Sunlight also doesn't affect him. I did like that this movie is doing its own thing for the lore of the creature. Now his life then takes a turn when George's wife, Ganja, portrayed by Clark, calls him. She was told by the museum that her husband was working and staying with Hess. He hangs up on her as he tries to avoid the situation. She doesn't have any money and Hess sends a car out to get her when she calls back. The two of them become close despite how abrasive Ganja can be. I will say here that Jones and Clark do an excellent job when it comes to the acting. They bring such life and depth to the characters. Now, Hess turns Ganja after he falls in love with her. They get married as well. Now, there's an interesting thing here that I always forget. Hess has a son who is away at school. We get one scene with him and then nothing. It was curious because he makes important decisions without necessarily thinking about how it could affect his son. He also doesn't necessarily think about how it will change Ganja, though, either. So where I want to go next, then, is that we have some good commentary underneath the story itself. It always intrigues me that Ganja is rude to the butler for Hess, who is Archie, portrayed by Leonard Jackson. She asks him if he's tired of waiting on Hess, to which he confirms that he doesn't. I do know there is the idea here that Hess lives in a white neighborhood. He doesn't want George to kill himself in the lake because it will bring the police in questions. Hess seems like he's taking on the oppressors of the black culture by having Archie and Reverend Luther Williams, who's portrayed by Sam L. Wayman, who does a lot of the music here. Now, that's his chauffeur. I still find it interesting that she is rude to Archie, though, unless she doesn't think that he respects himself by working the role that he does. And the more important commentary here is religion. Even though we meet Hess, we see Luther leading his congregation. That is something that we come back to. Incorporated in the supernatural angle, the people, this curse of the vampire is predates Christianity. Despite that, the power of the cross does seem to harm the creature. Not in a way that you would expect, though. There is also a scene where Hess is second-guessing his curse and seeks out religion. What is interesting here is that he's a man of science. I get the feeling that he turned his back on religion and then in a time of need came back. So where I'm going to close out is that I dig how this was made. I'd like a bit more care about the narrative. That is one thing that feels like it's lacking. I like the cinematography. There's an art house feel that I can appreciate. There are limited effects, but it is not that type of movie. The blood is a bit bright. That's something I have a fondness for. Soundtrack isn't necessarily my type of music, but it fits the tone and helps build the atmosphere. Not one that I can recommend to everybody, but if you want a different type of vampire film, check this one out. So my rating for Ganjin Hass this third time around actually has gone up, as I now give this an 8.5 out of 10. And up next for you is going to be my foray through the fours rewatch, and that's going to be Them. This is from 1954. It was directed by Gordon Douglas. Now, this was written by Ted Shermaden. I believe that's how you'd say his name. And I believe Russell S. Hughes did the 
adaptation, and then we have George Worthing Yates, who wrote the story. This stars James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, and Joan Weldon. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, our synopsis. The earliest atomic tests in New Mexico caused common ants to mutate into giant man-eating monsters that threaten civilization. So this is one that I learned about long before seeing. My parents are both big fans, and I'll be honest, I avoided this for a long time due to my dislike of black and white films. I've come around to them, as you can tell if you follow any of my reviews, but I watched this right after college before I was actually writing written reviews. So I was intrigued to see where I would fall again, so that's why I'm doing this rewatch here, since this is from 54. So then where I want to start is that this is a solid B picture. It doesn't waste any time getting into it. It lets us know that there is something not quite right happening in the desert just outside of this little town in New Mexico. There are stakes where characters aren't safe, and this could lead to an apocalyptic event if nothing is done, or if things aren't done properly. There's also social commentary here. So let's start delving a bit deeper here, and I love the setting. Being placed in a desert town is great, as there's so much area out there to search when you're looking for these giant creatures. We get this movie being set out west for also another good reason. They're using radiation and the atomic bomb as to the cause to why we have these mutated beasts. We have a child who survived the first attack, which is heartbreaking. It also makes for a great scene when they finally break her from that shock. And I also wanted to credit here to Sandy Drescher, who plays the the Ellison girl, who actually kind of gives us the title of this movie, you know, as she just keeps saying them over and over again. I think that will take me to the characters, and I like how they aren't safe. We have somebody in the beginning who you think might be a main character, and they get killed. I believe there's another that died during the climax. This raises the stakes for me. We also have to worry that if this nest isn't killed completely, the new queens could hatch and flee to make their own colonies. This does happen here. Even better is that one gets into the middle of the ocean before it's discovered. The explanation there was good, and there are story developments here that we get that feels like another movie that came out the same exact year in Godzilla, which I covered last week. I'll even then finish out my look at the story by going to the social commentary. This also shares elements with Godzilla. Atomic bomb testing outside of this town is what caused these mutations to create this giant ants. I also want to bring in the special effects here. Despite you being able to tell the fact that you know they're not really giant ants, I mean, come on. But I love that they went practical. They had to. I do think that there's some high definition here. It's something that hurts this, but I'm going to give credit. I'm not going to hold that against it. These things look like ants, just bigger. I also like that real science went into the script here to help explain and to find these monsters, and that all works for me. Then to finish out with filmmaking, and that'll actually go next to the cinematography, what helps to make these ants look good is with framing. They hide them behind like hills or other things. I'm assuming this was done with forced perspective. However they did it, it was solid. I also love this desolate setting of the desert. I'm a fan there because of how hard life is and how dangerous it can be as well. This also shifts to Los Angeles for the climax. I love the tunnels used there. The last thing, our sound design and music, I thought that the latter was fine. It fit what was needed. What I love here is the noise for these giant ants. It is eerie and it feels real as these tiny insects were as large as they are now. It also helps raise tension by letting us know that they're nearby. All that's left in his acting. I'll say that Whitmore, Gwen, Weldon, and James Arness carry this. They all work so well in their roles and how they work together. Like we have a police officer, we have the two doctors, and that would be Whitmore is Sergeant Ben Peterson. Then we have Gwen is Dr. Harold Medford. His daughter is Weldon, who is Dr. Patricia Medford. 
And then we have James Arness's Robert Graham. He's an FBI agent who gets called in. It feels ragtag, but seeing them work together was great. I also thought that Onslow Stevens and Sean McClory were good as military men who get involved to help. I also thought that Drake, and that would end up being Christian Drake, Drescher, Mary Ann Hokuson, and the rest of the cast were solid and around the South world was needed. There wasn't a bad performance here in my opinion. So in conclusion, this is a sci-fi horror classic. What is interesting is that until sitting down to write the review and then now recording it, I never realized this is kind of like an American kaiju. They aren't on the level or size of like a King Kong or Godzilla, but to a lesser degree, it is fitting that it shares elements with the latter as well. I thought that we got a good group of characters, so I'll credit the acting there. I also like the concept of having these giant ants doing what normal ones would do, just causing them to attack humans because of them getting in the way and just things they need. The effects to bring them to life are good for the era. There is charm there. I'm glad that I revisited this. If you like horror from this era or into giant animal movies, then give this one a watch as I think it's a strong film. So my rating with the second watch now of them is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. Then up next for you, I have a screener that I got to check out, which was Manhattan Zodiac 77. This is from 2023, getting its wide release here this year as it debuted at a film festival last year. This was written and directed by Hedgwick Shrek. This stars Anja Bell, Anita Berger, and Bridget Jansen. This is a crime horror thriller from Australia. It is currently sitting on an 8.5 on IMDb and a... Actually, I'm the only person who has it rated on Letterboxd right now. And our synopsis, a weary alcoholic New York police detective hunts a sex-obsessed psycho who kills a series of gruesome murders in and around Times Square. Two young women sharing a nearby rundown hotel room become his intended his next intended victims. So this movie that I got the chance to check out as a screener, as I was saying, thanks to Zyla Miller from Astro United Films. I'll be honest, the title intrigued me. I figured out that this was a horror film and it took place in New York City as well as doing its festival rounds, you know, making it a 2024 film as well. Other than that, I came into this one blind. So where I want to start then is that this has a runtime of less than an hour, which is kind of interesting. That intrigued me while also bringing concern. I was wondering if this would be able to build characters as well as flesh out a solid story. That goes by the wayside a bit and said this is more showing how well they can simulate 70s New York City and showcase this killer. So I do want to say that I didn't hate that, though. My opening thoughts bring up issues that I had, but I also wanted to say that the best part is the cinematography. There is so much grain due to being shot on Super 8 film stock. That was something that made me smile since it's in line with the opening because we get, like, a warning about what you're going to see and then getting that grindhouse feature presentation thing, like logo. I also read up a bit that during my review that this was filmed in rural Australia as a mock German Euro lost horror film in the 1970s. Everyone is using pseudonyms, or actually I kind of think now that just some of the like, key people were. And this even has bad dubbing. The text is also in German with English subtitles. I would have liked them to do a bit more with the story, but paying homage and being like a lost film is fun. Something else I notice here is they're paying homage to other movies that came before it. There is something that happens that was borrowed from My Bloody Valentine. That was a good choice. This also seemed to borrow heavily from Maniac. The Zodiac Killer in this one has a mother who has traumatized him so badly that as an adult he kills now. And I will credit there to Henri Stewart. This also has shades of Henry Lee Lucas, and I did like including that into the characterization. Let me then shift to the acting. I thought that Belle was good as Emily. She is given the most character development outside of our killer. I thought her and Ava were solid since they become the target from the synopsis. I would also, or I should also bring up here that Ava is, or 
Yeah, Ava is portrayed by Greta Cross. Now, she was fine as the friend. I thought that Helmut Pratt and Jürgen Raffner were solid as the police officers. The latter, as the lead there, was, we can see the case is weighing on him. Stuart works as our killer. They develop him the most, and this is done in a repetitive way. I would also say that Berger, Jansen, and Ilse Roth work as victims. The acting here is fine. The bigger issue here, I think, is more like lacking in fleshing them out from the writing. Let's then finish out with filmmaking. I've already said that I like how they created New York City using the Super 8 help there. The cinematography does good things. I'd also say that the framing does as well. The killings we see have good blood. They cut away to hide things and leave it up to our imagination. I appreciated that. I'd say that this is edited well. My biggest issue here is that they don't really develop the story of the characters enough to fully work. It is nice, though, to see them paying homage to films of the past like this. I'll drop here that the soundtrack favorable was needed. I love that we're hearing sirens in the background for the most part. That's kind of fitting for this era that it's set in New York. Now, in conclusion, I thought that this did some good things. Using low-grade film stock is one that gets that grain there, and we're not using, like, a filter, so that makes me love this paying homage to Grindhouse films of the past. They do some other things there as well that work. I'll credit the actors for fitting their characters. Even the blood cinematography and framing were solid. My problem is that I need a bit more story or character development for this to fully work. I'd recommend this, though, if you love this era of cinema or this low-budget style of film, as I think they capture the heart there well. So my rating here for Manhattan Zodiac 77 is going to, I hate to come in this low, but I gave it a 5 out of 10 just because I think I needed a little bit more. What they do works, they just kind of fall short on some other things. But this one, keep an eye out. I don't know if they have plans for distribution, but I know it is playing festivals as well. So if this does pop up and you're interested in some of the things I say, give this one a watch. And I also got to watch Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die. This is from 1996, directed by Bradford May. This is written from Michael Callery, Callery and Mike Werb. This stars Jeff Fahey, Andrew Voslo, and Darlene Flugel. This is an action crime horror sci-fi thriller that's a co-production between the United States and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis When he double-crosses a drug kingpin, Darkman must free himself from his remote control clutches. So this is one that I'm not entirely sure when I learned about it. I know that the Darkman movies would always kind of appear on the movie channels. In my head, I got them mixed up with The Shadow, so I kind of just avoided them for some reason. And it also makes me think that this are part two we're showing... But I had never saw the original, so that's also why I might have skipped these. So all of the movies in the series appear in the horror show guide encyclopedia that I'm working through, even though I don't necessarily think they're fully horror. Regardless, I've enjoyed the previous two, so I was curious to see where I would go with this one. Where I'm going to start then is that this is a solid sequel. I It doesn't reference the events in the first two movies outside of what happened to make Peyton Westlake, a.k.a. Darkman, disfigured and why he is as strong as he is as this, like this hero and that is portrayed by Vaslu. I'm fine with that though. It makes this one easier to jump into because we get enough backstory from the first one that we need and I'll credit there for the continuity. The other thing is that Liam Neeson was in the original but both the sequels feature the same hero in being portrayed by Vaslu. I usually hate recasting but I'm not going to hold that against this movie either. Let's jump into this movie where I want to start with our new villain. First, I was stoked to see that Jeff Fahey was taking on the role of Peter Rooker. This isn't his best performance, but he's an actor that I like. He has an aura about him where I believe that he could be this crime boss. What I think is funny is how small he's thinking, though. 
this feels like it was influenced by what was happening in the sports and like the real world where steroids were starting to become prevalent. I'm not sure why a criminal like this would want to just have super strong henchmen. It doesn't make them bulletproof. That just makes us feel like we're going comic book, which is kind of what this is. We're getting like a darker style superhero with horror elements. I just think that his plan is taking a step back from some of the ones that were used in the first two. Then shifting from this, I do like this limits Darkman for a stretch. He is close to solving his formula. Now, there isn't a lot of character development for Peyton or Darkman, but there is something that I found interesting there. Darkman has strength of 10 men when he is stressed that it amplifies. So it's kind of like the Incredible Hulk. Now, he is suckered in by Dr. Thorne, who was working for Rooker, but also has her own agenda, and she's portrayed by Flugel. So he gets suckered in by Dr. Thorne, as I was saying, and she puts a device that allows him to keep Darkman in check. Now, there's also stakes that he solves the formula, but Rooker takes the disc of his research and the synthetic skin he created. I did enjoy these aspects here. So let's get over to what I've been alluding to. Rooker is a horrible husband and father. Darkman sneaks into his house to take back his research and gets caught up at a party. He makes promises to turn himself in and he is doing some good things for Rooker's daughter of Jenny, portrayed by Alicia Panetta. Should say that Darkman is wearing a face that looks like Rooker. And this also makes Rooker's wife of Angela, portrayed by Roxanne Dawson, suspicious as she knows that he's not a good guy. There must be a reason. The more that Peyton spends time with them, the more she thinks that maybe her husband is turning over a new leaf. I feel bad for her as she so badly wants him to be a happy family. And I mean, she kind of married a cruel person, though. So that should be enough for the acting, or for the story, so let's go over to the acting. I've already said that Fahey was good here. Vasilu is a fine replacement for Neeson. He's also taken on the role in the previous movie, and he isn't the strongest of actors, as there isn't a lot of emotion there, but he's fine, though. I did think that Flugo was solid as his villainous mad doctor. Dawson and Panetta are good at bringing heart to Rooker and in turn Peyton. I thought that Bennett and the henchmen were their caricatures, but that's fine. She say it's Nigel Bennett portraying Nico. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast were fine for what was needed. All that's left is filmmaking. The cinematography here is solid. This feels like a lower budget than the original. This is straight to video, so there's that. I think that they do some good things with framing. The effects were good. What's also interesting here is I saw that K&B did them. I prefer the face of Peyton wasn't a mask because it looks rubbery. I wish they could have used kind of makeup there. But also, watching this on Blu-ray, this could be more of like a nitpick because they weren't expecting it to be as high def as it is. There are good things here with like the surgery on Darkman's neck. thought the practical effects were good. There are moments of computer effects that don't hold up. I am forgiving as I know one of them is like a vision. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, I thought this was a fine follow-up to the earlier two. This one feels like the stakes aren't raised when it comes to the plan of the villain, but it is Fahey, so that makes up for it. They can limit Darkman, which builds tension. They also have something that he needs. Vasily was fine in the title role. The rest of the cast worked for what was needed. There are no issues for filmmaking. I thought that was fine. The best parts are practical effects and the action sequences, and I'd say that if you like the first two, this one's fine for what it does to follow them up. So my rating here for Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die, is going to be a 6 out of 10. Then my last mini-review here is going to be Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles. This is from 1994, directed by Neil Jordan. The novel and screenplay were written by Anne Rice. This stars Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, and Antonio Banderas. Also has a young Kirsten Dunst. This is a drama fantasy horror film that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 7.5 on imdb and a 3.6 on letterbox with our synopsis being a vampire tells his epic life story love betrayal loneliness and hunger 
So this is one that I remember watching when it first hit the movie channels back in 94. I think I'd only watched it all the way through a couple times. It is one that I thought that if it was on, I'd jump in and watch it. I've read the novel that this is based from. I've also read others from the series as well. I've actually read quite a bit now as recording this, but there's such a deep and rich mythology here that makes me enjoy the story. should also point out that my most recent watch was the Gateway Film Center for their Vampire Winter series. This one packs in a lot for a two-hour film that is a longer book. The interesting thing here is having the writer of the novel of Rice be the one who penned the screenplay. I thought she did well at condensing things down while getting the heart of the book. Now, something that struck me the last few times that I've watched this is that I kind of think the vampires from Twilight are going for what we get here, but they come, sh- they fall short. Rice envisions them as pansexual and just in love with beauty. It's interesting that they downplay it here as this is a theme that she revisits throughout the series. This captures that being changed makes you the most beautiful version of yourself, and I can respect that. Now, another aspect of the story is that I love how we're taking this timeless creature like the vampire and showing them live through different eras. This film has Lewis as a slave owner, and he is portrayed by Pitt. Now, his slaves believe that there's an evil spirit around him, and they're right. This causes them to lose a plantation. We see the vampires in dealing with the plague in New Orleans, which, to be honest, I didn't even know that it struck there. I'm not shocked by that, though, either. We then see them moving through Europe as well. What is intriguing is the duality from the vampires that we have in America with, like, Lestat and Claudia and Louis to the ones in Europe where we have Armand and Santiago. should say Lestat is being portrayed by Cruz, Claudia is Dunst, Banderas is Armand, and then we have Stephen Ray as Santiago. And where I want to move my next point then would be, this is kind of why Armand falls in love with Lewis. Now, having someone as depressed as Lewis is great for this story. He is of a new world. He doesn't want to feed on humans that are around him. That is clinging to his humanity, even though he's a creature. He isn't of royalty like Lestat was before he was turned, and he wasn't like a boy lover to the rich like Armand, or even a child who doesn't understand like Claudia. He is from a world where he knows better, and he is stuck in that mindset. This would make sense that he would seek out a human to tell the story to like he does. So then from here, I think I should go over to the acting, which I think is excellent. Pitt brings such pain to the look to bring this role to life. He conveys things with his eyes, even though they're altered due to being a vampire. I could still see so much pain in them. He does a great job, and you can see how good of an actor he is. I have to say that Cruz is amazing in bringing such arrogance to Lestat. Now, having read other novels in this line, you realize that this isn't... Lestat is not as bad of a character as he is in this novel, which is interesting. And I think part of that is we're getting most of this from the eyes of Lewis. I think from that point of view, it's dead on and the performance is wonderful. Dunce is so young here and her performance is great. It's kind of interesting that once she's turned, she channels an older feeling through her character as she gets older in the story, which is crazy due to her age. Seeing the rage is quite believable. I do think I want to also commend here is Rhea Banderas. We also have Christian Slater, who is the guy interviewing Brad Pitt's character of Lewis. And the rest of the performances are as well as they rounded this out for what was needed. All that's left then would be filmmaking. I'll start with the effects. I always forget that Stan Winston was behind them. I love the look of the vampires here. When you turn, you become the most beautiful version of yourself, and that captures this. I like that when they're lacking blood, they look pallid and sickly. The eyes are using contacts, or at least that's what I'm assuming, which are quite gorgeous and creepy at the same time. These are monstrous-looking moments that I'm down with. I do know that they're probably using some computer effects at moments, but there's no issues. We have some great cinematography and sets to capture the feel of the past. This feels like 
it's more grand and things are framed well, which helps with the effects as well. I also thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this is a film that I thought was good the first time I saw it, and it still holds up. There's a lot here with deeper meanings, which I appreciate. I like moving through the different eras through the eyes of a vampire and seeing how they survive as well as adapt. It isn't as exciting of a story, so keep that in mind. The acting is amazing and it carries it. This is well made with the solid cinematography to capture the settings. The effects are good, which I expect with Winston attached. I will must warn you that this is a two-hour long movie. It moves at a good pace, though, so that helps. This won't be a vampire film for everybody, but I do love the take that we get here. So my rating for Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles, is an 8.5 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do that is get you over the trailer of my first featured review. Thank you so much for an amazing night. I love you. We love you. Get married. We're not For my first featured review here is going to be Underground. This is from 2023, but it's getting its wide release here this year thanks to Screenbox. This is directed by Lars Jansen, who also co-wrote this with Charlotte Dawn Potter. Now, Potter also stars in this with Caitlin Baber and Nadia Dauber, as well as featuring Cameron Ashplant, Brandon Ashplant, James Swanton, Sapphire Brewer Merchant, Bodo Frazeki, Andrew T. Hislop, Dave Hoyt, Mikey Toll, Chris Reeves, Louise Mitchinson, and Dave King. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 4.5 on IMDb and a, not enough ratings yet on Letterboxd, but I would say probably around like a one to a two star movie, or one and a half to a two star movie over there. With our synopsis being, after a wild bachelorette party, a group of women find themselves trapped in an underground bunker complex. A disturbing finding turns their night into an absolute nightmare. Will they be able to escape from this concrete maze? 
So this one that I discovered when searching for 2024 releases for featured reviews, of course. Now, there wasn't a horror movie shown at the theater, so I knew this one made its festival rounds in 2023, and then it hit Screenbox here in January of 2024. So I went ahead and checked this out, especially because there were some things that kind of were buzzwords that worked for me, and I'll get into what those are later. So let's start with the featured notes, and that'll be with our director of Jansen. This is his feature film debut. Has done four shorts ahead of this, though. And then there's an assistant director who is Potter. This is her feature film debut. These two also wrote this together. This is Jansen's first feature film. Aside from that, he's done two shorts. Now, it's the same for Potter as a writer. First feature, two shorts. Then her, she also stars in this. This is her feature film debut as an actress, but she's done two shorts. Her co-star of Dauber, this is her feature film debut. And then same thing here for Toll. This is her feature film debut and has done one short as well. And now that I'm actually kind of going through this stuff, it makes a little bit of sense what my problems are that I'll get into here in a little bit. But we start this at a press conference. Chief Inspector Hamilton, portrayed by Hislop, relays what he can. There is a reporter who presses for more and questions if this deals with the haunting of a local underground hospital. The chief inspector won't entertain this idea. What we learn is that three people are still missing from this ordeal. That's where we go into the past to see what led us to this conference. We have Ella, portrayed by Toll, who is getting married. She is dress shopping with her friends. This is leading them to going on a bachelorette party. We then see Claire, portrayed by Dauber, stole her mother's camera to recap as much of the night as they can. Now she goes to pick up Ella, and they seek out Jessica, portrayed by Baber. Now she's a singer and is in the studio when they show up. From here, they go watch Ziggy, who is portrayed by Brewer Marchant, during soccer practice. She then joins them as they go to the last member of this group, who is Riley, portrayed by Potter, as she has just flown in and she had moved away for work, so she had, you know, they're picking her up from the airport. Now, their plan is to go to a bar dressed as different things, like Ziggy is wearing like a frog costume, Jess is a dog, Riley was given like a chef's costume, where Ella is like a receptionist of sorts, and Claire has another one. I don't really recall what it is, but they seem to know, and they're, they end up having a good time and knocking back drinks pre-gaming while they're getting ready. This becomes a problem when they upset their taxi driver of Dave, portrayed by King. Now, Jess gets sick in Riley's wig, he is irate, and the second time is enough. That's what gets them to be near this underground hospital. It is supposed to be haunted. Ziggy takes the challenge to knock on the gate three times. As they walk away, there's thudding that seems to be in response. It spooks them, so they kind of hurry along to try to get back to their hotel, or at least back out to the main drag so they can get a new taxi. That becomes a problem when Ziggy falls through a hatch and breaks her leg. They go down to help her and end up trapped. This is the start of their nightmare as they try to find a way out. Ziggy disappears, and they discover what looks to be a satanic ritual. This just starts even more series of supernatural events that doesn't seem to have an end or a way out. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that we have some great aspects here that caught my attention. I like the idea of this press conference where bits of information are leaked. This sets the tone for me, but it also made me think certain things as well. With that, I love how we set up our group of characters. We get to know each one, which is good. When we are trapped and have them you know, down in this underground area, it's great because I'm a big fan of movies that feature places like this. Coupling that with the supernatural and Nazis, I was curious as to how this would play out. Now, where I want to start a bit more delving deeper would be into this group. I like that there are some subtle things introduced here. Ella is getting married, and from something Claire said, she might be the only one for a while. 
I'm getting the idea that Ziggy is a lesbian from how she's presented. Jess might be inclined that way as well, or at least curious. Riley has grown distant due to moving away for work. Claire's life might be falling apart, by keeping, but she's keeping up a good facade. How they show this was interesting where it comes to the costumes. Using a bachelorette party to get them together is also good. It explains why they're out and intoxicated as well as how they end up getting trapped. Now, I do need to shift to a negative here, though. This should be good and work. It uses this idea where there could be a satanic ritual down underneath the, like in the tunnels. It also seems like they're using real ideas and elements of what they have claimed to have happened in this location. It falls short, though, and I found this boring. Not much happens. Different characters will meet people who seem to be ghosts. This could be Nazis or people that were used as slave labor when this island was under occupation by the Nazis, which I end up looking this up. This place that this is taking place and filmed actually was a an island that the Nazis occupied because it's in between the United Kingdom as well as Normandy. And then I guess like the tunnels collapse, killing people. This makes for eerie things when they're on the screen. It's just too much time between things happening. It doesn't carry enough tension for me. I struggle to say interested, unfortunately, because of that. I think where I'll go over next would be filmmaking. Setting is great. Once we get into the tunnels in this place, it just seems like they it's been converted into a museum. All that works. I love movies that take place underground like this. Your phones don't work right, which makes sense. Then you add in haunting or supernatural, and it adds to that as well. Now, this is filmed in the style of found footage. I don't believe they keep filming, though. I also have to say, they use so much of the digital messing up of the footage that I got really annoyed there. Also, their phones seem to have unlimited battery for what they're using them for. This takes away realism for me. I do think they do well with effects, which was good. The cinematography is also solid, and they're using the depth of focus and having things happen behind characters. That usually freaks me out. Other than that, I think the use of sound design was done well. There are times where characters hear talking in foreign languages. Not understanding adds to the atmosphere. Now, there is something else that I'll credit. Now, there is music here that also takes away the realism of this being, you know, found footage. I'll then finish out with the acting before doing just a little bit of trivia. I've already said that I like a group of women. Part of that is that it feels like they get mad at each other and that helps to separate them. And they also feel like friends who have known each other for a while. I like that Brewer, Marchant, Potter, Barber, Dauber, and Toll all feel like this real group of friends who have known each other for years. Hislop, Dave Hewitt, and the rest, and the others of the like, reporters at the press conference were all good at that setting the stage there. There's a group of teens who appear later in the movie. I like how they factor in. King is also good in his limited role as his taxi driver. It's also kind of a funny thing that happens with him at the end. Overall, I'd say the acting was good. They feel like real people, which is all I'm looking for when it comes to found footage. Now, there is some trivia, as I was saying. All supernatural events in this film are based on true events experienced by visitors of the former Nazi fortifications. During filming, both cast and crew reported experiencing unusual occurrences. Some on-set audio recordings turned out to contain indecipherable noises and have been included in the film's sound design, which that probably also helps. Filmed at an actual World War II Nazi fortification that are still located on Guernsey Channel Island. So that's what I was referring to there. So in conclusion, I think that there's a good setup here. I love the location where our characters get trapped. Then having them deal with what could be a haunting and potentially a demon is good. I even think the explanation of what traps them in is solid. My problem is that not much goes down. There are long stretches where we are using the location in the darkness to build tension. The only That only goes so far. I will say that this is well made. They build a good atmosphere with the cinematography, framing, and sound design. The acting is good to bring the characters to life. I just felt like I needed a bit more. 
I'd recommend this to fans of found footage, but if you don't like the subgenre or filming style, definitely avoid this. My rating, though, for Underground is going to be a 6 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Who's there? Breakfast. I'm fine. I wasn't asking. Nolan Wright, involved in a car accident, resulting in the death of his wife. Is there anyone else who can pick you up? He's just running a little late today. And severe memory loss. If this happens again, we're going to have to notify child services. I believe that I can reverse your condition. We should give it a shot, right? Come with me, please. We call this headset the black box. An immersive virtual pathway to your memories. I like to begin with something I call the safe room. When, when you, you push, push the, the crown of the watch, you will be in your subconscious. Are you ready? Rachel. What the hell was in there? It's your brain trying to protect you from your trauma. Did things go well with Dr. Brooks today? I saw my wedding. That's progress right there. If that thing shows up again, you just say to yourself, I run my mind, it does not run me. I run my mind, it doesn't run me. I run my mind. It doesn't run me. Patients are often surprised by what they remember. Did Rachel and I live in an apartment? I don't think so. The place was really familiar. You're getting close. Stay with this. Did we ever fight? It's not what you think. You would never hurt Rachel. What's going on? We're close. I can sense it. You just need to remember who you are. I run my mind. It doesn't run me. And for my second featured review here is going to be Black Box. This is from 2020. It was directed by Emmanuel O.C. Kufar Jr. Now, they also co-wrote this with Stephen Herman. And I also found another writer as well that I'll get into here in a bit. But this stars Mamawado Athi, Vasilia Rashad, and Amanda Christine, while also featuring... Toshin Moro Hanfoli, Charmaine Bigwa, Troy James, Han Soto, Andrea Cohen, Gretchen Corner, Donald Elise Watkins, Naja Bradley, Naya Marie Johnson, Crystal Ray, Betsy Borengo, Justin David, Scott Green, Rose Bianca Gru, and Yavir Sorod. Now, this is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, after losing his wife and his memory in a car accident, a single father undergoes an agonizing experimental treatment that causes him to question who he is. So this is one that I forgot about. Back in 2020, this is when I heard it on multiple podcasts, and then it was clicked that this was a Blumhouse teaming up with Amazon where they did four movies. What made me select this was looking for horror films that have a black cast or director. 
this has both, and so this is in celebration of Black History Month. Other than that, I came into this one blind. So let me do some featured notes in before I get into the movie itself. And this was once again directed by Ose Colfer Jr. He's done two films and four shorts. First thing I've ever seen of his, only one he's done in horror. Now we have an assistant director here of Paul D. Udo. Now, I've seen two of his eight films. The other one was Green Book. Only one he's done in horror is this. Then to our writers, I'll start with Ose Kufar, who co-wrote the screenplay. Now, this is his feature film debut here, but has three shorts. Then we have Herman, who co-wrote this and came up with the story. He's done three features and three shorts, only one that I've seen, and has one other one in the in the genre called The Culling. Now, we have one other writer on Letterboxd named Wade Allen Marcus. Has two features. I've only ever seen this. Only one he's done in horror. Let's move to the cast and start with Athie. He's been in 18 films and two shorts. I've seen two. Both are in horror with this and Underwater. Then his co-star of Rashad. She's been in 47 films and four shorts. I've seen two. Not in horror. I've seen her in Creed. She's done two in the genre, though, with this and Legacy of Evil, which I have not seen this other one. I think I've heard of it, though. Then lastly, I look at Christine. She's been in three movies. Been in two that are in horror. She's been in this. And then the other one was something called Stephanie. Don't really know much about it outside of that. So then, for this one here, we start with seeing a mother and father bringing their daughter home from the hospital. Now, there is Nolan, portrayed by Athie, and Rachel, portrayed by Bradley. Now, they're with their daughter of Ava. It then turns out that Nolan is watching an old video. There has been tragedy since that time. Rachel passed away in a car accident. Nolan was brain dead, and no one thought he was going to make it. That was until Dr. Lillian, portrayed by Rashad, saved him with an experimental treatment. There are side effects, though. Nolan has problems remembering... Ava, who is portrayed by Christine, is doing more than she should as a child her age. She's trying to help her father get back to the person that he was. We see that he gets angry, and that scares her. He even punched a hole in the wall, which was out of the normal for him. He's very usually more like a pacifist. No one does have help, though. His best friend is also a doctor by the name of Gary, portrayed by Moro Hunfoley. Now, he thinks that his friend is doing too much and rushing things. Nolan also keeps getting calls from Dr. Lillian, who believes that she can help him. This makes Nolan leery, but he keeps forgetting things. He is scolded by a teacher at Ava's school for forgetting to pick her up. He also cannot get the publisher to agree to use in his work. They said that he's lost his touch a bit. Now, this doctor claims that she can get him back to who he was before. There could be something more that she is claiming, though, and help explain why Nolan doesn't feel exactly like himself. It involves hallucinations that he has, as well as using this experimental treatment that allows him to explore memories. They might not be his, though. So that's only my recap introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that this does things well. It is fitting that this came out from Blumhouse as this shares a concept with another of their movies that is considered to be a modern classic. That's all I'll say is to not spoil this or that movie if you haven't seen both. While watching this, it makes sense. Another thing that I enjoyed here is the heart that develops with Nolan and his struggle about how the accident changed him. Now I believe that's where I'll start. Nolan was a photographer. He was quite good as well. We learn, though, through him talking to Gary that he and Rachel were happy. They never seemed to fight, and their lives were perfect with Ava. That was when this accident messed everything up. Now, he cannot remember little things like his secret handshake with Ava or even picking her up from school. My thoughts were that the accident messed with his short-term memory, maybe even a little bit of his long-term. That's part of it. There is something here that is a bit more than that, though. I thought that Athie does a great job with showing a range of emotions. He has frustration that leads to anger. There is love that he has for his daughter. And then as he starts to discover the truth about himself, he changes into a different person, and that worked for me. Now, I want to talk about the people that surround him. Ava is doing everything that she can to help. What bothers me here is that she's being too grown up for her, uh, for her age as this child. That's too much responsibility for somebody her age. What I love, though, is that she wants to stay together. Like him being her father and everything like that because he starts to question if he can handle it 
Kudos to Christine for her performance. I love that Gary is there to help as well, but no one is proud and refuses. There's also Dr. Lillian, but there could be ulterior motives there. So that leads me to my next point. There's this mad scientist sort of type of movie here. She has created this technology that allows her to investigate the minds of patients. This is how she got Nolan to wake up. There's more to this though, and she might even be able to save the consciousness of patients as well. This is how Nolan came out of his coma and needs to work through memories to cure his condition. It is doing this that he runs into the backwards man portrayed by James. Now this is done by a contortionist and is quite creepy if I'm going to be honest. I liked how that built tension though. Now, I've already pretty much ran through the stars of the movie, so let me reiterate some of the, like, other supporting cast here. But I will say then before that is Athi, Rashad, Christine, and Moro Hunfoli were all good. They carry this movie as it's a character study of Nolan and his life. I'll also credit Bigwa here, who's a, who's Miranda. She factors into Nolan's life through memories, but he isn't sure why. There's also Thomas, who is played by Watkins. I like how he factors in here. Bradley was good, along with Johnson. There's not a bad performance here. They all push Nolan to where he needs to end up, building his emotions, as well as figuring things out. I'll end this out with filmmaking before just a little bit of trivia. thought this was well made. The cinematography and framing are good. I love that Nolan is exploring memories to fix his problems, so that brings a dreamlike feel. Then going along with this, he can't remember faces. That is what he needs to solve to help himself, but this could also be what hurts him. How the backwards man factors in here was good as well. There is CGI, but it's fine. Since we're in the mind for this, it makes sense. It's almost like a dream. I'll say the soundtrack was solid. My issue that this isn't exploring new ideas. We've seen this done elsewhere using different concepts, so it feels a bit generic. If it didn't bring the emotion through the character development, this would be pretty much all but forgotten by me. I, I well, That's at least what I think. So then a little bit of trivia that I have here. When Gary uses the tablet to look up the apartment building, the address shows the plot of this movie takes place in the Houston, Texas area. Moral Hunfoli and James both portray characters from the DCCW shows. The former played Instant on Black Lightning and James played Peter Merkel, a.k.a. Ragdoll on The Flash. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna tread lightly here because some of these are spoilers. Now, there's an interesting thing here where Nolan sees a memory of a wedding inside of a church. If you're paying attention to photos in the background, there are little things here that is why he gets confused. And then there's some high-tech medical equipment that's supposedly able to do something impossible. This is using like an EEG, our waveform recording of current brain activity. They do not show or retain memories or personality. So I thought that was kind of. When I was looking at it, this seemed like pseudoscience, but I can also roll with it for a fictional movie. So then in conclusion, this movie is fine. I want to like it more than I did, but that is because Athy was so good as Nolan. I love how the characters around him push him to where he ends up. This movie tugged at my heartstrings, seeing certain decisions. We get the mad scientist aspect, which I'm a fan of. The problem is that there are concepts and things done here that we've seen elsewhere to this just... It doesn't feel original enough. I'd still recommend it, though, if you're a Blumhouse fan. This isn't a bad movie and worth at least a watch, in my opinion. So my rating here for Black Box is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me go ahead and get you over to one last break before I close out the show. And welcome back one last time here. And just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff... If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback, or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast-related, you can send it via that way. 
If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On Threads, I'm David OSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing, like my ratings on, whatnot. I know for Letterboxd, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non horror alike. Instagram I will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing. My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for threads. And then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast-related different stuff over there. And I'll also direct you to the Nightclub Discord channel as I have a little section over there where we have some good conversations. I post all of my reviews and any new podcast episodes or some of the things I'm watching when I actually have time to post that. So keep an eye out over there and I'll have the link for that and everything else in the show notes there. And then I'm also going to direct you a way that you can actually listen to the show is going to be through the Pod Nation TV this is a streaming service and everything like that. There will be a link in the blog posts for all of my episodes, so if you'd like to listen to it that way. It's kind of a cool little thing. You can definitely do that through like Roku TV, and there's some other apps for it as well, just as another way for you to consume this podcast if you decide to. There's also a lot of other great shows that are on that network as well. And for the next episode is going to be actually realized now why I had them structured like I did is going to be another one of my women appreciation here as the older movie is going to be in my skin. This is one that I found online where I can stream it. This one has a woman director and from everything I'm hearing, it is a pretty brutal movie. I think there's some like cannibalism stuff in there and it's going to be fittingly synced up here with Lisa Frankenstein, which I believe also has a woman director. If it doesn't, I know it's written by Diablo Cody and we it's Lisa Frankenstein. So we're looking at a Frankenstein style story with a female mad doctor that I'm also going to be having the Mask of the Red Death is going to be the Foray Through the Fours rewatch that I have. I believe that's from 64. And then I'm also going to be going to the Gateway Film Center a couple times. There's a lot of movies being shown this week, and I'm going to try to get them all in. I know I'm going to go see My Bloody Valentine that's showing there. I've only seen this one once, so I'm going to get the chance to see it on the big screen. And then I'm also going to try to see if I can fit in Only Lovers Left Alive. And then I know Friday night is going to be showing Wake and Fright. This one show so late so we'll see about that one but those are potentials not all of them are going to be guaranteed and i'll also have more horror movies mixed in there for you as well so don't think there's anything else i need to get your speed with here then for this outro so i will say in closing is whatever you do today i hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending <laughs>